Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Chris Wallace hardly needs an introduction. He's been a presence in American journalism now for uh, more than four decades. And as the host of Fox News Sunday, he famously tangles with public figures every week. I had an interesting chat with Chris recently at the Fox News headquarters in Washington. Chris Wallace, thank you so much for being here. I, uh, uh, we've had many encounters over microphones and cameras, but uh, it's great to sit down with you. Uh, but we've, and we've never done it this way, where no. you're asking the questions and I have to I answer. know, and I'm not going to give you the same admonition I always got from you to keep my answer, your answers short, because it's a podcast, man. You can expand. Well, no, we should tell that story. So I give every person, not you, everybody I interview, I always Uh at the very end, because we only have 12 minutes, and I always say, or 10 minutes, I always say, now look, uh, uh, try to keep your answers short so we can cover more territory. And I had said that to you so often, and you're the only person (laughs) in 13 years of this show who has ever done it. Before I was going to get it out one day, you said, now, Chris, keep your questions short, and we'll be able to cover more territory. And I laughed the way you did. Yeah, which you didn't, by the way. But anyway. Yes, okay. uh, You come by journalism naturally, but not in the way people suspect, because everyone knows you're Mike Wallace's son, but you didn't really know him uh, until later in life. No, uh, that, that, that's true. I, I knew him, I did. But, but uh, knew him in that way. But really close, no. Not probably till I was a teenager. And, but actually, Chicago figures into this, because when I was about four years old, the Democratic Convention, 1952, the Adlai-Stevenson Convention was being held in Chicago, and I lived on North State Parkway. And Adlai Stevenson, the Democratic nominee, was staying in the McCormick Mansion right across, right around the block. And my mother, who'd been divorced for a number of years, there's no scandal here from my father, uh, was watching on TV and saw this dreamy man, as she described him, uh, who was reporting from Stevenson headquarters, black and white TV. This was back in 1952. Yes. And she said, well, so, uh, Chris, let's go and see the excitement. So I remember I got on my tricycle, and uh, she walked over, and I didn't know this until years later, put on a somewhat revealing sundress, <laughs> and we went around the block, and there was Bill Leonard, who was a correspondent for CBS News, ended up becoming the president of CBS News, and in fact, my father's boss. So he was really the one I grew up with. I, I was nine when they got married, and he was really the I, the most influential figure in my life and career. You uh, and, and your mom was in uh, had a background in journalism as well. Is that right? No, I, no, not really, but I, just as a, a cute story. 
So my mother and father met at the University of Michigan. She, he graduated. She quit after her sophomore year. Uh, and he went to work for a radio station in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And as one of the things, he had been a disc jockey and an announcer and, and things like that. He'd never done any journalism. He had to start interviewing people. The first questions that Mike Wallace ever wrote to ask people were written by my mother because he didn't know how to write a question. Oh, is that right? Yeah, it's true. So um, you um, you actually were brought together. And tell me if I get uh, – you, you'll I know you'll correct my facts. You always do. As you have with me. Uh, but uh, you um, – uh, you 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 reconcile with your father as a teenager, uh, really, as uh, in part because of of tragic circumstances. Yes, that's true. Um, I was about fourteen years old, and my brother Peter was five years older than me. He was in between his sophomore and junior years at Yale. Uh, he went off for the summer to uh, Europe, as college kids do, and in just a horrible, tragic accident was climbing up a mountain in Greece and uh, not a uh, mountain is a kind of an overstatement but it was big enough slipped and fell and died and I think at that point as I say I was 14 my father and I both felt we ought to get to know each other and and we did and he used to take me because I it wasn't that I disliked him it's that I didn't know him and it was a little bit like being forced to spend time with an uncle that you don't really know but you know your folks say you're supposed to go see so he would take me there was this great watering hole in New York City called Tut Shore yeah, very famous and he was a big fat he was almost like Jackie Gleason he was a big heavy set loud talking guy and it was the big watering hole for sports figures yeah, right. and and my father knew that I loved sports so really more to see the sports figures than to see him I he'd invite me out to Tutshore and I would happily go and because he was famous we I can remember meeting uh Frank Gifford and uh Howard Cosell and Eddie Arcaro who was a famous jockey that I'm sure none of your listeners uh, know who he was and um but in any case and <laughs> in addition to all of that and a good meal we got to know each other and it just it slowly developed over time the interesting most interesting part of the story is so now fast forward to I'm in my 40s and um I split up from my first wife and if there, and my stepfather had just died, and I think my father always felt he was a little bit excess baggage with, uh, with my father, which I didn't, with my stepfather, I didn't feel that way, but I think he did. But in any case, I was kind of adrift, you know, divorced. Well, if there's one thing my father knew, it was divorce, because he was married four times. And so for about, I was working in a primetime magazine, traveling all over the country and the world, and, and so was he, obviously, on 60 Minutes. And for, I would say, two to three months, Every night, David, every night he would find where I was and call me hmm. to say, how you doing? And That's nice. that really cemented it. And I would say for the last 20 to 25 years of his life, we were best friends. That, that's, that's really moving. Uh, did you... Um, and, and, and he very famously grappled with depression. So did you find yourself playing the same role for him at times? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, look, it's a special relationship. And in a business like this, which is very competitive and sharp elbows and everybody's got an agenda, he, you know, we would critique each other. And we both knew that the only thing that 
that the other one wanted was that to, to make you as good as you could possibly be. Um, so, sure, we, we talked about that. It's funny you mentioned this about depression. I was talking with my wife just last night, and something came up about depression. I say, well, that, fortunately, that was one thing I have not inherited from my father. Um, but, but he did suffer from depression. And interestingly enough, by, by sort of later in his career, I think he was as proud of the role he had in the early 80s in destigmatizing depression as anything he did. Um, you know, here was this big, tough, capable guy, Mike Wallace, and he was suffering. And this was back in the 80s when depression wasn't as widely known and as accepted uh, as it was. There was a stigma about it, and he was very public and one of the first public figures to go public about it. And I think he felt so very really, proud of that. really important. I have to tell you that I was uh, one of those people who was moved by that because my dad committed suicide when I was young. And, uh, and I kept it very, very quiet for a very long time. Uh, no, it w- there was a stigma. You know, yeah. I mean, and I realized, finally I realized the reason people uh, commit suicide and don't get the help they need is because of the stigma and it causes them not to come forward. So I started writing about it, talking about it, and I've never gotten more reaction to anything I've ever done than those kinds of pieces or, 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 or talks uh, because there's so many people who just want to know that it's okay to acknowledge that you have what is an illness and that you can, it's okay to go and ask for help. Absolutely. So what your dad did was, was heroic, really. I'll, uh, I'll tell you a quick interesting story about that. He, there was a show that Bob Costas used to do called Later, and it was on really in the middle of the night. It was on after Johnny Carson and after whatever followed Johnny Carson. This was on about 2 in the morning. And my father went on it, and Costas started asking him about depression. And my father said, you know, it's really important that we talk about this now at 2 in the morning, which is when people were watching it, not when it was taped. Because he said, if you're suffering from depression, one of the key things is you can't sleep, and you're up in the middle of the night, and you're feeling alone and adrift, and they're probably listening to us and watching us right now who are suffering from this, and so it's important that we talk to them. Yeah, I'm sh- and I'm sure he was right. The, there's something about the night that's particularly uh, oppressive. Um, you know, I'm, I've always been interested in fathers, famous fathers and sons who go into the same field, pr- particularly as it relates to politics. I mean, you know, Al Gore Sr. and Al Gore Jr. and, and you know, just uh, obviously the Romneys and others. And... Um, Wondering what it's like for the younger person in that relationship who's in the same field. Your father was a giant in broadcasting. Um, you've you've achieved uh, the same heights in it in, in your own way. But coming up as a young man in the business, uh, how how difficult was that? Were, were expectations um, higher? Do you think? And was, was there a concern that people thought, well, he's here because he's the great man's son? I want to put this in context because let's be honest. It, you know, they, they talk about problems being like rich people's problems, you know, not, not, not problems of life and death. And this is very much— It's a high-class problem. It's a high-class problem. I, yeah. Rich is the wrong thing. So, so, you know, to sit there and say, woe is me, I was the son of Mike Wallace, I'm not sure I'm going to get a lot of sympathy from people out there. But to anybody who's been in that position, yeah. it is 
it is, and it doesn't have to do just with politics or, or showbiz. It could, listen, it could do with anything. My guess is, uh, you know, if you were the town, the son of the big lawyer in town or the guy who owned the hardware store in town, it would be true to be the son of or the daughter of is its own, as I say, not oppressive, but it's a burden. And you're exactly right. People question uh, why you're there, whether you got it because of your connections or because of your talent. Um, you know, it, I suppose it's worse if your father is a public figure as opposed to my hardware right. salesman example because uh, everybody knows uh, him, and to the degree that you're in a, the same business, everybody kind of knows you. I can tell you that there's a long period of time where people, even people that you've worked with a long time, will suddenly say, Mike, instead of Chris, and that always cuts a little bit because you think, well, gosh, I've been working this with this guy <laughs> for five years, and he still thinks of me as Mike Wallace's son subconsciously. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. I, I'd say two things about it, that at some point, and it, was, it took a while, maybe it was in my 40s, that I, I, I finally came to this conclusion. I said, you know what? I am never going to be Mike Wallace. But then I said, neither is anybody else. And there's a heck of a lot of room to have a great career and accomplish a lot and, you know, and not have it be in comparison to anybody. The other thing I would say, and I find this really quite surprising because it was, it was always there, is that after my father died, and particularly now that he's been gone f- almost five years, five years in April, um, I almost feel like I have to carry the banner for him. I want people to remember him. And where before, if somebody said something about your father or even called me Mike, and I might get a little bit ruffled by it, now my reaction is I'm glad you still think of him and you still remember him. Yeah, yeah. Um, Let's go back to your um, just – I want to pick up the narrative of your story because one of the things that interested me is – I read somewhere that you attended the 64 Republican convention in San Francisco, which is like a legendary political event. Some would say some of the roots of what we're dealing with today in our politics flowed right from that campaign and and that convention. And beyond which, you were like an intern for the biggest legend in broadcasting, Walter Cronkite. That's all true. Now, this, this, this is probably the upside of the high-class problem, <laughs> yeah, yes, right? exactly. Yeah. So, so in those days, and, and they don't do it today, and they should. They, they used to, you know, is, is it blatant nepotism? Yes. But what they used to do is the networks, and it wasn't just CBS, if you were the son or daughter of a top correspondent or an executive – you would get a job working at the conventions, and the thought being, one, these people were probably pretty bright and could help, and secondly, because they'd get an insight into what their mom or dad did all the time. So I was working there with, you know, the son of, of uh, Richard C. Hodlett and uh, with Walter Cronkite's daughter, and I'll get to that story in a moment. Yes. Uh, but, but I was the gopher, and this was much more because my stepfather was the head of the CBS election unit than because of uh, of my father, um, I was the the gopher, go for coffees, go for pencils, etc. In the anchor booth with Walter Cronkite uh, and Eric Severide at the Goldwater Convention at the Cow Palace outside San Francisco in 1964. And a little piece of trivia is who was the only person that was in both anchor booths, both the Democratic in Atlantic City, Lyndon Johnson, and the Republican in. Uh, 
in the, the Cow Palace, Barry Goldwater, and the answer is 16-year-old Chris Wallace, because right. if, if you may remember, between those conventions, Walter Cronkite got fired because the ratings were low, and Bill Paley kicked him out, so they put this combination of Roger Mudd, who was in his 30s, and Robert Trout, who was in his 70s, together, and the only person who survived from one uh, anchor booth to the next was me. The uh, And you, you, you said you were going to tell a story about Cronkite's daughter. I guess she became a special friend of yours for a while. Huh? Well, she was my first girlfriend, Nancy Cronkite, who I hasten to add was a lot better looking than Walter and didn't have a mustache. <laughs> and uh, it, 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 I have to say, people at, at CBS were tickled pink. I remember... Um, answering the phone in the newsroom one day and one of the CBS reporters said, is this Nancy Cronkite's boyfriend? And I laughed and he said, and I said, you guys are all enjoying this. Well, because at the time my father was anchoring the CBS morning news and Cronkite was anchoring the CBS evening news. And they said it was like the merging of two duchies or something (laughs) like that. Do you remember the actual convention itself and the drama there? I mean, uh, Rockefeller being booed and, uh, you know, Scranton walking out and all of that stuff. and, And Dwight Eisenhower talking about sensation-seeking columnists and commentators, and people started shaking uh, the, the, the platform uh, of, of the foundation of the anchor booth that we were in. So, yeah, and I remember Barry Goldwater's you know, moderation in the pursuit of liberty is no virtue and extremism, whatever. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you ever think about that today as we're watching what's going on? I mean, do you see... Do you see lineage between sort of the movement that was there at that convention and uh, some of the roots of, of, I guess, what we'd call Trumpism right now? Well, I've seen it throughout my whole career. The first, as a grown-up, the first political campaign I really covered was Ronald Reagan in 1980. Um, I covered him in the general election, and then I covered six years of him in the White House. And you absolutely could see the ideological strains that had really come to not— fruition because he got clobbered, of course, by Lyndon Johnson in the 64 election, but came to prominence in 64 under Goldwater, reached fruition under under Ronald Reagan. I, I, I think less, certainly some of it, but less of it now because I don't think of Trump as a particularly ideological yeah. figure or a particularly conventionally or strictly conservative figure. Right, but in the anti-elitism uh, the, sort of, there was a, a there was a, a threat of anti elitism that ran sure. through that that ran through these campaigns. I thought of it when you talked about the the shaking of the anchor booth because there's a lot of anger directed on the part of Trump supporters at the news media. Right Absolutely, now. no, and and that certainly is a common strain from from Goldwater through a lot of Republican and conservative politicians uh, in, into Trump. Although I will say that your former boss has been known to take a whack or two at the media, particularly Fox News. Yes, although I can't remember a rally at which uh, Trump, uh, Obama supporters rushed the, uh, the Fox News uh, uh, stanchion or whatever. Uh, so it was more civilized, you know. More uh, civilized uh, demagoguery, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> we can get to that later. <laughs> okay. Uh, you went on, and at what point did you decide, uh, like, I'm going to be a reporter, I'm going to be a journalist, I'm going down this road? Well, not until I was out of college. I, I actually uh, applied to law school, got into Yale Law School, was about a week away from starting there. I would have been in Hillary Clinton's class. 
maybe she would have married me and I would have been president. Uh, but I just less reporting than just not wanting to spend another three years in school. And I went around looking for jobs and, um, and this gets back to an early point, wanted to start in newspapers, not in TV, because I thought it was better training, better mm-hmm. reporting, better writing. I know that's where you started. Yes. And got a job at the Boston Globe. And, and this gets, as I say, back to what we were talking about earlier, was very happy to hear a couple of months later that when I applied and got the job, they had no idea who my dad was. That yeah. really pleased me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what, what, did, what were you covering back in those, in those I, days? Within a couple of months was the, and this, talk about it. A great assignment. I was the city hall reporter for the Boston Globe, uh, covering Kevin White, who was then the mayor of mm-hmm. Boston, yeah. and Louise Day Hicks, who was on the city council and one of the champions of anti-busing the anti-busing movement. movement. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What? A, yeah, I was a city hall bureau chief as a young guy at the uh, Tribune, and there is no no better Chicago assignment. City Hall, Boston City Hall. You get a good education uh, there. Well, then I went to Chicago. My next job, I, I, I remember four years, and then I went to Chicago and worked for WBBM, and I was the political reporter for them and covered the, you know, people talk about Richie Daly. You and I know the mayor, Richard We're, J. Daly, uh-huh. and I, I covered him for a couple of years. In the, uh, there were, that was a, sort of a golden age for WBBM. With, you must have been there in the Bill and Walter I was. Era. I was there when just Walter when they Jacobson started. and Bill Curtis. Bill and, Curtis, Walter Jacobson, co-anchors. The sportscaster was Brent Musburger. Yes. Uh, it, was, it was a pretty grand time. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with Chris Wallace. What, 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 what about those Chicago days? You, you, met, you were there for the sort of the end of the Daily uh, era, kind of the – it was beginning to unravel a little bit toward the end of his life. What do, you, what do you remember about that period of time? Well, I remember being fortunate and feeling that it was the end of an era. I, I, I left before he passed away, but I was there for the trial of Tom Kane, yes. who was his top guy city hall, in, in the uh, city hall yeah. on corruption charges. That's, of course, when – uh, then U.S. Prosecutor Jim Thompson, later Governor Thompson, was taking apart the Democratic machine piece by piece. And, and, you know, you had the sense that it was almost like you were covering a time capsule and that at some point years later you'd be able to say, I covered the Chicago machine of Richard Day Daly. And, and I do feel that, that it was just an extraordinary look at a different kind of politics that we don't – I don't know that we see today anywhere where you had this complete commingling of the Cook County Democratic Party and the the government of the city of Chicago where politics was was uh, government and government was politics. You know, um, and I've talked to the president about this. Uh, Chicago has is politics isn't subtle in Chicago. People are pretty uh, have traditionally been pretty overt about their motivations. And in certain ways, it's politics kind of s- stripped down to its elemental court politics laid bare. Uh, and it actually is really good training. You know, Tip O'Neill said all politics is local. You learn a lot. Uh, and I don't mean this just in the pejorative way, because these ward committeemen and aldermen, they worked their communities. They knew everybody. They had developed personal relationships. And having to deliver for those people was central to, aside from whatever pecuniary interests they had, was central uh, central to what they were Doing, I think about those daily years a lot because I was a young reporter at that time too. Uh, when I'm, I, I hear some of uh, 
Donald Trump's press people trying to explain his his tweets and statements, and I, I was reminded of, I think it was Earl Bush who was his, uh, yes. he went to prison as well. He was the I think he was, he was the one who said, don't print what he says, print what he meant, uh, which was an interesting uh, admonition uh, to, to reporters. Um, and then you went to network television. Uh, but let me just interrupt to say, I completely agree with you. I think that that one, it was a fascinating education, and you're exactly right, because these folks were in charge, and there was nothing you really could do to them. And so they were often happy to brag about their their arrangements. And as far as how it worked for the citizens of Chicago, I'm sure you can get, you know, the Better Government Association in Chicago would tell you about all the terrible things. I, there are plenty of times as a homeowner here in Washington, D.C., when I wish I had a ward committeeman or a precinct captain who could get my garbage picked up or my street swept, uh, you know, during the, a big snowstorm. So, yeah, yeah no, there, the, there were compensating values. Well, in, in many ways, you know, I was one of the young uh, reformers back in the day when I came to Chicago as a college student uh, and was absolutely convinced that the total democratization of the process was not only necessary but right and uh, to some extent we achieved that in the Democratic Party in the nominating process of candidates and there are times when you say you know you, you kind of yearn for the old days I'll, I'm sure I'll get lots of <laughs> tweets and emails about this but uh, you know the, the party bosses they often uh, chose people who were uh, corrupt and inadequate but but just as, but they also uh, produced Adlai Stevenson and Paul Douglas and some uh, and people who took governing seriously. And FDR and and and, and a lot of people. No, yeah. it, it's uh, it, I. You know, you wonder. It's a terrible thing to say about too much democracy can be a bad thing. But sometimes I think it can. And 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 you know, you'd like to have a blend. You certainly don't want to go back to where it's just right. six guys in a room. Who uh, picking are, are, Warren uh, Harding right like in the smoke filled room? But if, you know some mixture of primaries, and also, I mean, to some degree, maybe the Democrats have it with the super delegates, uh, which the Republicans didn't. This which, time. by the way, I mean, is something that um, there are many people in the Democratic Party who would like to do away with. Right, would like to do away with. Right. So, but the idea that that people who have a, have contributed to the party—I don't mean contributed financially—contributed in terms of their their efforts, their product, their production, their um, their involvement with the party over years to have some, to have some, the stakeholders to have some stake in the process might not be an altogether And people bad who have some appreciation for, for the governance, you know, right. uh, but uh, that, I mean, that's the theory behind the superdelegates. I think the Republicans kind of yearned for superdelegates in the last, uh, in this last process, but you went on to, uh, to uh, the network, and as you mentioned, um, uh, you covered uh, Reagan. Uh, what 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 did you learn covering him? First of all, what kind of figure was he to cover? Well, I will say the 1980 campaign, and I didn't cover you guys, so uh, this isn't in any way casting aspersions <laughs> on, on you uh, no. uh, or or President Obama. But the 1980 campaign was the best campaign. I ever covered. Um, it was the best run campaign. It was the most disciplined in terms of having a coherent. I didn't cover the gen- the primaries. I covered the general election from Labor Day. In terms of having a coherent message, um, it it did have a message. There was a coherent set of policies that that Reagan uh, embodied and, and was pushing. And 
you know, you can argue whether they were the right ones or the wrong ones, but it is what he put into effect. Smaller government, lower taxes, less regulation, more robust defense, uh, harder line in terms of Russia and the Cold War, and and he brought that to pass. Um, He was a... It's an interesting question. I'm thinking of him as a candidate and then as a president. I always got along just fine with him. Um, you know, he wasn't going to sit there and, and unburden himself of your, his, his deepest, most philosophical— I don't think he did that with many people. No, he didn't. I mean, I, he was a very have, reserved guy. Yeah, but, but he was perfectly pleasant, and he could banter, and he, and he genuinely liked the press and genuinely respected the idea that we had a role to play. In fact, one of the advantages we had, I remember covering the general election, is that— he was. This was a guy who had loved for all these years to uh, to say what he thought about things, and oftentimes people wouldn't pay as much attention to him, even as governor of California, as he wanted. Well, now here he was with a you know trail of reporters covering him and asking him questions all the time. And he would you ask him a question, he'd answer the question, much to the horror of his aides, because he was just used to the idea of wanting to spot off and say what he wanted to say. So he was great copy, and there was also. Uh, particularly in the public stage as president, a larger-than-life quality. And I have to say, as a reporter for NBC, and, you know, I like to think I had this skeptical adversarial relationship reporters should have towards presidents. Um, When you were overseas covering Ronald Reagan, and he was on the world stage, whether it was with Gorbachev or with, with, uh, you know, in China, with Deng Xiaoping, you felt some pride. Uh, You know, he carried himself like a president, yes. and and he made you kind of proud, to quote the song, to be an American. He, uh, it's interesting, you know, you're right that he implemented many of the things that he ran on, but he also showed a kind of um, flexibility, a, 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 a willingness to compromise, a, a, you know, an understanding of the process. I mean, he had been governor of California, which is not an easy state to govern, particularly if you're a conservative Republican, for eight years. Uh, and so he can't. So, you know, yes, he cut taxes. He also raised taxes. He, uh, he uh, increased defense spending and talked about the evil empire and ended up uh, as Gorbachev's ally uh, in terms of nuclear proliferation and, and, or non-proliferation and ultimately set the stage for the dissolution of the of the Soviet Union, so there was a there was a nuance to him. There were nuances to him and his approach to politics that I think aren't as appreciated sometimes when he's lifted up as a kind of conservative icon. No, absolutely, and he and he was the first to say it. As you say, he had been the governor of California for eight years with Democratic majorities in the legislature, and he always used to say, you know, I'd rather have eighty percent of something than a hundred percent of nothing. Uh, and and frequently was willing to make compromises that didn't achieve everything he had set out, but achieved a heck of a lot of what he wanted. One of the questions, as you were saying this, I was thinking, and I'm going to, forgive me, throw this back at you as a question. Yeah. Reagan was very successful, and to a certain degree he had to, because he, I think, always had Democratic majorities in the House, not in the Senate, at working with Democrats and peeling off Democrats uh, conservative Democrats, the bold weevil Democrats, from Tip O'Neill and using them with the Republican minority to pass legislation in the House over, as I say, over Tip O'Neill. And I and I wonder, I've often wondered why 
Barack Obama didn't make more of an effort, particularly in the first year or two, when he did have a tremendous wave of support, and maybe even if he didn't need it, because he had the veto-proof majority the first year and all of that, why he didn't make more of an effort to get Republican support. Yeah. No, listen, I uh, this is a, a much brooded about uh, subject. I'd say two things. One is 2009 was significantly different than the America that Ronald Reagan and the Congress that Ronald Reagan uh, confronted. There weren't there there was there wasn't a large body of kind of swing. uh, You know, the the swing wasn't as great that that because of redistricting and uh, the nature of our politics, which is much more polarized. uh, You didn't find these sort of there there isn't there wasn't that huge body of um, kind of the Republican equivalent of the bull weevil uh, Democrats. But beyond that, Chris, um, and I've talked about this a lot, I think that Mitch McConnell and the leadership of Mitch McConnell in particular made a judgment, and it was a shrewd judgment. president talked about this on our podcast, and I, I agree with him. But McConnell spoke about this openly, that the principal thing that Barack Obama ran on was bringing people together, getting past this partisan gridlock in Congress. And uh, McConnell understood that if there was this uh, this kumbaya moment where Republicans and Democrats came together around anything particularly big, that that would, be, uh, that would cement Obama's uh, popularity and make it very difficult to displace him. Uh, I can tell you I was there when the president spent hours with people, uh, members particularly of the Senate, on various pieces of legislation, and they would say, look, we, we just, unless you can get 10 of us, we can't do it because it's, you know, it's basically it's policy. Um, now, could he have done better, perhaps, uh, at the margins, you know, but this notion that if he just played a little more golf with guys, that it would have been better, I, no, I, I don't think it's, I don't think I don't it's, think it's true. Here's the only point I would make in, uh, with regard to this. Uh, you know, I know you guys like to point to the McConnell statement, but that wasn't until, as I remember... January 2010. Right. So you a had, year a, you had a year for that. And during that year, you basically took the stimulus package, which could have been a very bipartisan effort, and told Eric Cantor, uh, look, we won, elections have consequences, you, meaning Obama, and uh, and also... Uh, basically turned over the stimulus package to Nancy Pelosi and the committee chairman who put a lot of pent-up social programs and things that weren't going to particularly stimulate the economy. Uh, I think that was a missed opportunity. I think if there had been a much more bipartisan effort and if it had included more tax cuts, even if it hadn't been... A as, third of it was tax cuts. But even if it hadn't been as democratic, the, to get by, to get buy-in from Democrats, it seems to me, would have been very helpful. And then there's Obamacare, which ended up being a strict party-line vote. And again, I wonder, you know, I don't have to tell you, because you guys were using it as a talking point, a lot of the health care reform started under John Chafee. It was a, yes. it was a Republican idea. Yeah. I just can't... Yeah, again, well, you were well, there, I wasn't, but as, an, as a pretty close observer, it looked to me like you could have done more. Let me... I'll 
talk to you about that in a second. But the, the funny thing about the stimulus is you talk to Democrats and the criticism that you still hear today is he loaded it up with tax cuts to try and please Republicans when we should have used that money for more infrastructure and and so on. So there, there there's argument Shovel on both sides. But I, I do think they this. They weren't ready anyway. I do think, I do <laughs> think this. Trust me, if you ride the roads that I ride in rural <laughs> Michigan where I have a home – uh, we're ready for for infrastructure. Well, though, now the Trump infrastructure. Yes, there you go. Yes, we'll see. I hope <laughs> I hope it comes because my car is getting beaten up. Yeah, here. Not, mine too here in DC. But on the uh, on on the healthcare front, um, uh, I, I I again I, I there were hours and I remember one member senior member of the Senate who had voted for the Chafee plan uh, sitting in the Oval for two hours in the president saying, well, we like agree on like 98% of this. Can you be, can't do it. Can't do it because um, there was enormous pressure not to, uh, not to do it. But here's, here's what I, I do feel this. We had uh, a, 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 a super majority of 60 by at the peak of that period and large majority in the house and uh, had the ability to pass this, and the president felt it was urgent that we do it because the healthcare system was uh, imploding, healthcare inflation, the rate of uninsured, and he felt that we had to act uh, then. Um, and and he did it with Democratic uh, majorities. What I worry about, na- and, and I do think working, uh, passing a bill of that magnitude on a partisan basis had ramifications in terms of torquing up uh, the, 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 the partisan zeal on, uh, on both sides. Um, now uh, what concerns me is we have a, a president who was, you know, Barack Obama won by seven points in 2008. He swept in large majorities in both chambers of Congress. Uh, con- uh, uh, of Congress. He, he uh, won... Um, uh, a significant electoral uh, landslide as well. Uh, and yet we still confronted that. Now you have a president who has who who fell three million short in the popular vote, won by slim margins in the states that gave him the electoral uh, advantage. Uh, and yeah, I had Sean Spicer on this podcast the other day, and he said, and I said, do you govern with humility? It's almost a rhetorical question when you're talking about Donald Trump. But do you govern with humility, or do you, uh, or do you govern like you have a mandate? He said, "No, I think you 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 govern like you have a mandate." And I think you always have to govern like you have a mandate. I know. I mean, George W. Bush did that in 2001. That doesn't mean that you. I mean, look. You, you, then why? Then why with uh, with with an actual with an actual uh, huge majority? Do you feel Obama shouldn't have moved forward on the health care? Because, uh, well, here's a, here, no, I didn't say he shouldn't move forward in the health care. I'm just saying how, how he should have done it. Because here's what you've got now is you, because he did it in a party line vote, because it became such a political issue, now you've got the possibility and that there was no bipartisan buy-in. And it was, you know, for eight years, it went to the Supreme Court twice. It was always controversial. Now you've got the possibility that it's going to be largely undone. Uh, as a political issue, which yeah. I think is terribly sad, the idea. I mean, look, everybody wants people to have health care, and the idea, you can argue about the effectiveness of Obamacare, but 20 more, million more people have health coverage than, than, than did before. And I, that's one of the things that I asked Republicans throughout the whole campaign. It's easy to say repeal, 
But, you know, what are you going to do for the 20 million people? Well, beyond the 20 million people, uh, you know, there are other things. Uh, the, the, the guarantee for pre-existing people with pre-existing well, they'll, get they'll, insurance. They'll keep that. They'll find yeah, a way but to but, 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 Chris, this is the reason why after five years of voting to repeal the law, they don't have a replacement ready to go because it is vi- the economics of the private insurance industry is such that uh, – this is like a a brick wall, and if you pull one brick out, the whole wall comes out. And uh, I, I promise you, whatever them. they do, I mean, and there's I know, and we can get really into the weeds and talk about high risk pools or whatever. But there's no way politically that they, and frankly, in terms of its merits, that they're going to be able to do away with pre existing conditions. Yeah, I think, that, and I think there are other elements of this. Remember, you know, that you know that there was the recent report said that the uh, projected health care spending from 2014 through 2019 is going to come in 11 percent under uh, the original estimate because of delivery reforms within the Affordable Care Act Look, and changes not, that are being made. I, I know, I know. You're I'm, not, I'm not bashing a no, I understand. Well, I was all bashing the way is, it came into, a, into no, being. All I'm saying is it's going to be harder to, uh, in any responsible way, um, sort of, the repeal thing is a, it's a, it's a great political bumper sticker, but the uh, implementation of it could create a lot of chaos that will spill on a lot of people. So they they are they would be right to proceed uh, with caution. I, but I, com- I I completely agree with you on that, and I think that there's you know as as President Trump said in a tweet this week, you know we got to be careful not to to let the Democrats off the hook though, in owning it because though it, though it was never it was never but, as but with everything is, with them, no one knows exactly. What it means, you know, it's like a fortune cookie thing. Right, but what I'm, what I'm saying is you're exactly right. Uh, you know, the Republicans, at very quickly, if they repeal it, they're going to own it. And if they start taking away th- the good parts of Obamacare, they're going to pay a huge political price on it. But uh, my, my point was that um, with a much, with, 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 in a much less strong position relative to the country as a whole, uh, if, if this president is brazen— in uh, pursuing goals that don't have majority support in the country, um, it is going to create uh, a great deal of problem. And, you know, I, I got asked a question on my way over here by a reporter who said, uh, sh- uh, should Democrats do what Republicans have done, and should they be uh, relentlessly in opposition for the next four years? And I said the temptation is there. I think there's a great deal of disconsternation about what uh, McConnell did on the Supreme Court nominee, holding that seat open for a year. When he had Merrick Garland, who was really a consensus a choice, well-liked by Republicans as well as Democrats, uh, and should Democrats, you know, Schumer said, maybe we'll just leave it open. My, my concern is that we go down this road of mutually assured destruction and that all our institutions are going to get degraded, and it's going to be difficult for any president to, uh, to govern uh, in the I agree future. with you, but let's flip that around. And, and I agree. I happen to think the Republicans were wrong not to consider Merrick Garland on the merits. And if it had turned out that he seemed to be as solid a candidate as he As they as thought he, he was when they be, put him on the, the, uh, on the Court of right. Appeals. Right. Well, yeah, but those are different. And that wouldn't be the first time a, a, a Court of Appeals judge mm. didn't make it to the Supreme Court. But but I'm saying, you know, I think they should have considered that. On the flip side of that, though, David, I think you'd agree uh, when Barack Obama came, I think on the first day, a half dozen of his cabinet nominees were approved. And within the first week, almost all of them were approved. And now you've got r- Democrats talking about long delays in the hearings uh, to confirm them and that people aren't going to be, con- you know, he's going to be sitting around Trump around an empty 
uh, cabinet table till March. I don't think that's good, and that's something that actually the Republicans did pretty well in 2009. Yeah. Uh, they would argue, I love this ping-pong game. They would argue, well, we should take a break points. before I take my next uh, shot. Here. Okay. On the point of nominees, uh, you're absolutely right. I don't think that the it's and the, the last thing that anyone should want is Donald Trump sitting in a lo- uh, in a room alone <laughs> making all these decisions by himself. But uh, many of these nominees are pretty controversial. A lot is not known about many of them, and so therefore taking some time to – I'm sure that this thing – I think Senator McConnell will insist on uh, expediting these as much as possible. But there are some – look, some Rex Tillerson, I think the resistance is coming as much from Republicans, McCain and Graham, as, uh, as from Democrats. So it'll, it'll, be, uh, it'll be interesting. Let's talk about the news business. Yes. Uh, talk about the news business as you found it. Uh, in 1980, which or, is sort of or the when do- I really started in like 19, well, I guess in TV, TV news, 1972 or the newspaper 69. I, it's I, completely different. It's completely different because it was then a very pyramid, pyramid-like hierarchy. You know, you worked at a local station or a local newspaper, and then depending which it was, then you moved up to bigger. Uh, and in the case of networks, you, if you went from a local affiliate, I went from WBBM in Chicago to WNBC in New York to then working at a network. And, and you know, there were just three networks and maybe a half dozen national newspapers. And once you reached them and once you got a good job in one of them, you were at the top of the heap. Well, it's completely different now, particularly – well, on both sides. It's completely different on the new, newspaper side because newspapers are in real trouble. And obviously a lot of them – sadly. Yeah. Whoa. Listen, I worked at the Boston Globe for four years. You worked at the Trib for how many? Uh, for eight. Yeah. yeah. So, so I mean, I, I love newspapers, and I still get uh, – this. my kids think I'm nuts. I get a, 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 a little bit, a frisson of, 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 of uh, excitement every morning when I open my front door, go out on my step, yeah. and get my newspaper and I open know. it up and read it. And people say, well, gosh, you should you know read it online. Yes, no. We, we're, we're like from Jurassic Park. Yeah, I know. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you have to fight off the velociraptors to get the <laughs> – to get it. Uh, uh, but the television news business, and this is really interesting to me. When, you know, I was the White House correspondent for NBC, other than being maybe the anchor of the NBC Nightly News, that's as, as good as it yeah, got in the television absolutely. news business. Uh, politics, Fox News got bigger audiences on election night, got bigger audiences for the Republican convention than NBC did. Uh, you know, uh, frankly, whether it's NBC or whether it's Fox or MSNBC or CNN, I don't know how you could understand what was going on in a campaign if you just watch one of the major broadcast networks. Uh, you know, you watch a show like Brett Baer's Special Report, 6 o'clock, a full hour on policy and, and, and uh, politics and with in-depth coverage of the campaigns. There's nothing to compare with that on the three broadcast networks. Let me, let me ask you about um, the, the Fox News. You... you you made the uh, the uh, move over here in what early two thousand two thousand three or something like that late two thousand three, uh, and uh, you know and this, that was a big get for them uh, because you thank you you were uh, well I'd say it behind your back, uh, but um, that's like my father. My father used to compliment me more behind my back than <laughs> my face. But um, uh, you understand the 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 the, the rap against uh, 
Fox News that that uh, not your and and I, I would say you're you know I went on your show a lot when I was in the White House. I enjoyed it during the campaigns. I enjoyed it. It was always a it was always a brisk way to start my Sunday. But I, I felt like we had fair uh, exchanges. But I mean, you yourself have been critical at times of some of the coverage. Uh, I think early in the Obama administration, you said something that probably wasn't greeted well. No, actually, I was during the campaign when uh, the Pennsylvania primary and the uh, Senator Obama had said something. And I went on uh, Fox and Friends and said, which I felt that they had done, two hours of Obama bashing is enough. And they didn't like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I probably shouldn't have said it on the air. I I think I should have and would have said it behind the scenes. Uh, sure, I've been critical of some of the coverage. I'm critical of some of the coverage of the of the broadcast networks too. I, I look at, at at the way that that they covered this campaign, the way they've covered uh, other other things, some of the stuff uh, during the Obama administration and before. Um, I, I, look, I, I, there's first of all, there's a big dividing line at Fox between. News and opinion, and there's no question, and nobody is going to say anything different than from uh, 8 o'clock till 11, prime time, when it was O'Reilly and Megan, or now Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity, those are opinion shows, and they have, they're, they certainly tilt, I don't, I think O'Reilly's a little bit more unpredictable, but, you know, they tended to slant Republicans, slant conservative, uh, but we don't make any... Or any, slant Trump in the case of, of Sean right now. Yeah, but but there actually there have been a lot of people on Fox who were very critical of, uh, like Britt Hume and George Will uh, of uh, of Trump during the entire campaign. Charles mm-hmm. Krauthammer and and Krauthammer was yeah. Steve Hayes was was killing all of them yeah. about that. Um, but no, they. But I think you look at most of our coverage during the day, uh, from nine o'clock through seven o'clock. It's it's pretty even handed, and and sometimes you know if we if if we err on the side of of giving the conservative not advancing it or, or or pushing it but presenting the conservative point of view i think that's an, a useful antidote to what the broadcast networks do where sometimes there's only one side of the argument i mean so do you think that when when you talk about fair and balanced do you feel like you're balancing off what other networks are doing i think we're presenting both sides of the story, no, because I think that implies, well, we're going to slant right because they slant left. That is, that's exactly what it implies. Yes. <laughs> so I'm not inferring that. You're no, no, no. That. I'm just I'm, no, I'm I think expressly I, suggesting Well, I don't know. I, I think on our show, I think we do make – all right. Let me give you an example of fair and balance, and it, 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 it will go to the debate. When I uh, moderated the third presidential debate, one of my thoughts after the first two debates was that I wanted a fair and balanced debate. Now, what did that mean? Did I, was, it, was it right-wing? Was it pro-Trump? No, and I don't think anybody thought that. We got tremendous praise from both sides of the aisle and, you know, all kinds of liberal and conservative yeah. commentators. But, I, I think I was one of them. Okay. They're guilty as charged. But here are some of the subjects that had not even been discussed after uh, three hours of debating between Trump and, and uh, Hillary Clinton. The Supreme Court, the Constitution, abortion, yeah. gun rights, immigration. I mean, it was Donald Trump's major issue. It hadn't been discussed no, in the debates. Right. Debt, entitlement, Social Security, all of that. Right. So I think that discussing those issues, not to say one side was right and one side was wrong, was a fair yeah, and balanced no, debate. Yes, it was. And, and 
I'm not critiquing you, okay, nor your performance in the debate, which I, I thought you, you did a superb job uh, in that debate. I'm really talking about the coverage. So, look, the network, and Roger Ailes is someone I know we were – competitors as consultants. I came to know him in his role. Uh, I'm not here to bash uh, Roger, although there are plenty of people who would do that. Uh, But, you know, he was a Republican political operative who was brought in to start a network, and he created a brilliant uh, money-making outlet uh, for Fox. But it had, it reflected his worldview, and he attracted a lot of people who shared his worldview. It's a good business model. Um, this leads me to a different question, though, which, you know, you and I, we grew up in a time when with journalism, I think we were raised to believe journalism was a trust, that we had a responsibility. Um, and, you know, when I started off in the business, the editors would, the, if the business guys set foot in the newsroom, they would be tarred and feathered and throw, no, thrown they, out I the window. I remember the Boston Globe, there was an absolute firewall between the business side and the news side, and I can remember that I never met anybody on the business side in three years at the Boston Globe. And one of the reasons I left the newspaper business was because they had a change of management at right. the Tribune, and it completely changed. And now you, you have such a competitive environment with the Internet and social media uh, as well as cable, uh, and the competition for eyeballs uh, is so great that um, I think the the – there's also a competition between this notion of journalism as a trust and journalism as a business. And um, I but just don't you think, wait a minute, don't you think that's always existed? I mean, you know, it is called the news business. And I, I, I will agree with you that the balance on the seesaw has shifted somewhat. But, you know, I can remember working at the Boston Globe that. Uh, around Christmas, if there was going to be a story about one of the big advertisers at Christmas, the, the, the news side wanted to inform the business side if you were going to tell the story about something that had happened bad at Filene's basement in, in uh, Boston or something. And yes. I'm sure that was true about Marshall Fields in Chicago. Well, you know, speaking of Marshall Fields, my mother was a journalist and she was one of the first women in the newsroom at PM. I don't know if you remember, PM was a kind of a left-wing newspaper in New York. Uh, yeah, vaguely. Uh, and, uh, but, but a prominent daily there. And it had no advertising because Marshall Field didn't want advertising to creep into the editorial decision-making. of the, So what you're saying is true. It seems more pronounced now, and you, com- and you, and you add to it the sort of instantaneous nature of news. You and I both had... Uh, news, what, what this quaint thing, almost as quaint as newspapers themselves, it was were news cycles, right, right? Where you could actually reflect on a news cycle was twenty four hours, and right. you know, winning the news cycle meant winning the day. Now it means winning the this, minute, the minute, the second, which doesn't leave a lot for editorial uh, uh, for editorial judgment. The other thing that worries me uh, is this whole debate about fact and are facts are facts fungible. You know, um, and I, I wonder what that's going to do uh, to the news business. Well, I don't think good newsmen think facts are fungible. Do you? I mean, I know that there's it's a, a question of the, what the public. We now have a president who has been. Uh, you know, if you were to go on the air and criticize him today for his war with the intel people and suggesting that they're on a political witch hunt, um, you would probably fetch. A tweet saying the the phony crooked media is distorting. Oh, my I, words! I, first of all, I 
have, I will. I mean, you know, one of the points I've done, I do local hits. We're doing this on a Friday, and I do local hits with stations around the country, and obviously everybody's talking about the, 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 the showdown between the intelligence department, intelligence community, and Trump. And one of the things I've been talking about how is Trump in his tweets talks about the intelligence community and puts intelligence in quotes. Uh, you know, that's, you can't have that. You can't have the president denigrating the 17 agencies of patriots who, uh, you know, who, who risk their lives in many cases to try to give them the best information to make decisions. The idea, and, and this is something I've said as well, but this is why you like me, because I don't follow any party line. Uh, I think that the embrace of Assange by conservatives has been disgraceful. People well, the forget fact who that, this that, guy that, was. Now Republicans, uh, you know, Putin has a 50 percent approval rating among Republicans because Trump has uh, has gone that way. That's that's kind of astonishing to me. Well, OK, but, let, you know, there are excesses on. No, I'm not. Your I'm side not making a partisan well. point. Uh, the, well, it sounded partisan. <laughs> well, but okay, but the uh, but the, the 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 concern I have is that um, is sort of um, not just about facts and you know what are fake. What you know, we should know what fake news is. A, a pizza parlor, right? And, the, the, this whole the, idea that Hillary Clinton was involved right. in sex trafficking, which ring. got millions of. Millions of well, more of than tweets. that, I got and, a guy with and, a gun, and, and, uh, and the uh, son of the uh, national security nominee of the president uh, circulated it. But to That's, his credit, was fired as he result. was fired. He was fired. The, the but the notion that if if I, I worry that, and we're all guilty of some of this, that if the news media becomes and you search for outlets to affirm your point of view rather than inform your point of view, then we're losing something that's fundamental to a democracy. I agree, David. But here's, here's the whole point that, of Roger Ailes and Rupert Murdoch when they started Fox News. They felt that where everybody just talked about these three objective, nonpartisan networks, that there were millions of people around the country who felt that there was a political slant there that wasn't, you know, that nobody was talking about, that there was an inherent bias in ABC, NBC, and CBS. And one of the reasons that I think you found such a hunger and such an audience for Fox and for conservative talk radio is because people felt that they were only getting a portion of the news and a portion of the news that affirmed rather than inform their point of view. So, you know, I, there, there, there are two sides to that story, and I'm not sure that we, aren't, that we aren't sort of past that day, not in the sense of past the day of objectivity, but past the idea, the day of thinking that there's any news source out there that everybody's going to trust. Do you think, um, and, and I know we have to wrap, uh, but I, I wanted to ask you really? rel- this relative to this. I know, I could go on for hours, brother, but... Well, come uh, back, let's do it again. The, um, you know, Breitbart, was considered a, a kind of a fringe uh, operation for a long time. Now you have the, the chairman of Breitbart sitting next to the president in the White House, and they will take a prominent place, I assume, in the, in the press room. Uh, does that concern you at all? Sure. Sure. I mean, look, uh, you know, when I, I'm as horrified by some of the Breitbart headlines as you are and as I think any sensible person would be. Um, it, look, I'm, I'm for all for responsible journalism. It's what my father devoted his life to. It's what I have devoted my life to. I just think that, that 
you know, I think that as guilty as you think conservatives are of just wanting people who agree with them, that there are liberals who just want news sources that yeah, agree I, with them. Yeah, look, I'm and, worried and, and that we're all lives. headed off in those directions. But I it, mean, and, and, and frankly, I mean, just one quick example, the New York Times, on the second day, the day after, uh, so it was, I guess, what, it would have been Thursday morning. Look at the headline in the New York Times, the Thursday after Election Day, November 10th. And the headline was... Democrats, students, brace for Trump presidency. I mean, can you imagine a headline if Hillary Clinton had won, uh, Republicans, workers, brace for Clinton presidency? Fair never. enough, but... It but, would never would have happened. But when, I, when we were talking to Sean, Robert Gibbs and I talked with him at a program at the IOP. We said, we were talking about fake news, and, um, and uh, he went to some examples like that. And to like me, that's what? not fake news. Like, uh, you know, headlines in the Times or and, and he said sometimes, you know, they, they're the reporting is wrong or they they, you know, they don't check out their uh, facts thoroughly enough. To no, me, that's, that's not that, that's, that's not that's, fake news. Right. In the same sense. I think it's biased news. I think it's irresponsible news, but I don't think it's fake news. Fake news are just concocted news stories which have, you know, aren't biased. They just have no uh, tie connection to reality at all. They're just made up. Uh and that's inexcusable and dangerous. And, you know, the fact that that people fall for it, again, as I say, I've devoted my whole life to this, uh, to trying to tell people facts, to try to inform them. Mm-hmm. I promise you I'm just as concerned about that as you are. Well, I'd be a fool not to end it right there. Uh, Chris <laughs> on, Wallace, on thank rare, you for being here. Thank you for coming to the Institute of Politics. We want to have you back uh, again soon. I would love to do that. I have thoroughly enjoyed this. And at the risk of hurting you, Uh, And your credibility, I will say that there was nobody in the Obama White House who treated me uh, more fairly, more openly, you know, in better good nature than you. And and it's one of the reasons. I appreciate it. I hope you're not suggesting that sort of in the tallest midget category. uh, In the land of the the blind, (laughs) the one-eyed man is king. (laughs) I appreciate it. Good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.